Welcome to the Urgent Matters podcast. This is a series where leading experts from around the world share with us their latest insights into overactive bladder. I'm your host, Professor Paul Abrams, and I'm delighted that you have joined us for this latest instalment. It's a pleasure to welcome Professor Van Karabuk as our expert for this podcast. He is the Emeritus Professor of Urology in Maastricht in the Netherlands. He's had a long and distinguished career and has published extensively. He chaired the first ICS working group on Nocturia published 20 years ago. He's become very much an expert in OAB and has pioneered the use of sacral nerve stimulation for patients with intractable OAB. Thank you, Paul, for the kind uh, introduction. Uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you again. It's, it has been some time because of the corona uh, uh, troubles, but it's a pleasure to talk on you on a topic that we both have devoted quite a bit of our life to and that we've been dealing with also in terms of standardization of terminology, standardization of diagnostics and standardization of therapy. So it's a pleasure to share some thoughts on this topic with our colleagues. Well, thank you. Can can we start by asking you about your view on the current state of awareness of overactive bladder in primary care physicians, or as we call them in in the UK, general practitioners, GPs? Indeed, awareness is still a problem at the level of uh, GPs because they have to see so many different pathology and uh, OAB is only one element in that. Also, OAB is distinct from other diseases that, in fact, it is not a disease as the others because it is a symptom complex. And by definition, OAB is caused by something that is not specific pathology. So it remains a little bit an enigmatic condition. And so that already is, from an intellectual point of view, a little bit more difficult to approach than a specific disease as, for example, or a specific problem as hypertension or diabetes. Uh, Philip, do, do you think that primary care physicians find it difficult because they're not confident as to how they should diagnose overactive bladder in an individual patient? That is definitely the case, because uh, as I earlier said, OAB is a symptom complex. So there are different diagnostic elements. So already history taking is more laborious because the patient will, for example, present by indicating, well, I have urinary loss or urinary incontinence. But then there has to be a discrimination between stress urinary incontinence and urgency urinary incontinence, which is one of the symptomatic elements of overactive bladder. But the GP cannot focus only on that because there will be also other symptoms as urgency or abnormal urinary frequency or nocturia. So all this has to be investigated and hence it will be laborious and time-consuming. So that's already one problem. The second problem is that the diagnosis of OAB means that we have to exclude specific pathology. That means that by history-taking already, other symptoms 
have to be investigated at the request of the physician because also we have to realize that still many patients with symptoms of overactive bladder have a certain taboo talking too openly about all these different symptoms. For example, in my experience, symptoms at night is something that patients are quite reluctant to talk on. So there is a proactive role of the physician needed. When it comes then to further eliminating specific pathology, of course, physical examination will be essential because in female patients, gynecological abnormalities, as for example, prolapse, can be a cause for similar symptoms as we see in patients with what we call idiopathic overactive bladder. So that also will be important and time-consuming. And also, it's essential to exclude a urinary infection, and hence, urinary examination will be essential to exclude an infection or to see that there is no hematuria, because that, of course, will open a completely different window. Another important diagnostic element in OAB is voiding charts. Now, we are convinced, and it has been proven, that voiding charts really contribute to the diagnosis of overactive bladder, also are an important element in the future therapeutic approach. But again, it's laborious, because the physician will have to explain to the patient how to record the voiding chart. The patient will have to be motivated to do it. And as such, in my experience, many physicians do not like to give this piece of paper and then the patient has to come back. So they all find it too much fuss. So therefore, motivation from both the physician and the patient are essential. So all this together makes that diagnostic diagnosis of OAB is not simple. It is not as just measuring blood pressure to diagnose hypertension or measuring glucose in the blood to diagnose diabetes. Thank you. you you've mentioned, uh, I've heard you talk in the past about the psychological aspects of patients with functional disorders, and overactive bladder is a type of functional disorder, isn't it? How, how do, you, do you think this makes it more difficult for GPs to assess a person who might have OAB? That is definitely complicating matters because I agree that indeed psychological factors, anxiety and depression symptoms, and this is not really the depression as we know it in the psychiatric sense, but really anxiety and depression symptoms can contribute to the symptoms of overactive bladder and in some patients even may be the primary cause. So that is opening still a different book of the diagnosis in such a patient. And definitely there is reluctance at the level of the GP to embark on that. On the other hand, it, again, it will be essential in terms of the diagnosis, but even more in terms of the therapeutic approach. But there are other elements that are important in terms of diagnosis and not that easy. And there I would quote, for example, constipation. We know that 60% of the females that come to see a GP with symptoms of overactive bladder have constipation. 
sometimes even severe constipation. So the first task of the GP then will be to ask about this. But once the problem of constipation has been presented, again, it is a multifactorial etiology. And so there, again, the physician will need some time to make the analysis of the reasons why this patient has this constipation, how severe the constipation is, and then come up with a therapeutic proposal. On the other hand, this is very important because we know that just the treatment of constipation sometimes can cure the symptoms of overactive bladder or definitely in the framework of additional therapy can alleviate the symptoms and make future therapeutic modalities easier and more efficient. I think you made it very clear that that the situation is complex and and a a detailed history is important. Of course, that is an element uh, of difficulty for the primary care physician, at least in the UK, because they only have seven to ten minutes to talk to the patient. And you've already described the important comorbidities that, that may be occurring. So I wonder whether we can simplify it. And two things you've said, which I think are really important, is that firstly, we need to tell the patient that we don't fully understand the cause of their overactive bladder. We know it affects their quality of life and we can, by our treatments, improve their quality of life. And that the key symptom is urgency. Do you think we're making the message too complex for the primary care physicians? And if they just concentrated on being honest about our limits of knowledge and concentrate on the symptom of urgency, this would make diagnosis uh, easier and accepted better by the patient. I would agree that it is always good to make things simpler for the patient. And I think you indicated something very important. That is to take, first of all, the complaint of the patient serious, not to say, well, you know, this is part of uh, aging and your mother or your grandmother had it. So that is the first uh, thing to take it serious. Then indeed, uh, we have to realize that many patients are not aware of uh, their anatomy and even less uh, of their physiology of uh, the bladder. So therefore it is important to recognize these different uh, symptomatic elements. And for example, as you quoted, urgency, which is clearly distinct from the normal urge to void, has to be recognized. That, of course, are element, once the GP is informed, can go quickly. And that can facilitate also the time needed for a correct history taking. On the other hand, I'm afraid that uh, it still will take some time to do the first investigation. Indeed, history is essential, but we can speed it up as we discussed just a moment ago. But physical examination uh, in uh, females, a gynecological examination, in males, uh, evaluation of uh, of the prostate uh, can be important and, and will have to be addressed. Therefore, I think that voiding charts are a perfect tool because um, of course, patient has to fill it out, has to come back, but that gives time for the patient to get um, knowledge about their own pathology, so to say, about their own symptoms. Because I'm always surprised to see that patients then, first, first time, will recognize 
how much urine they're producing, what is the amount of urine that they produce at each of the voids, how often they wake up at night, and this kind of things. And of course, that will necessitate a control visit, but I think as such, it is possible to uh, do good uh, diagnostics and still put it in the framework of the time that is available. Yes, no, I agree. I think the bladder diary is, is hugely important because, as you say, the patient will often come up and say, uh, Professor, am I, am I drinking too much? It seems like uh, I drink quite a lot. Or um, I've noticed that if I have three coffees in the morning, then my symptoms are worse. Well, I agree in, definitely in terms of the voiding charts, but it's my experience having talked to so many uh, GPs it's not very popular with them. And we have to recognize that even amongst urologists, there is some reluctance um, to uh, ask patients to fill out the voiding charts. So if this podcast has as a result that GPs are more convinced that uh, voiding charts are important, that they're not so complicated, although they necessitate some explanation, I think this was already a useful event. What about the issue of quality of life? We haven't specifically mentioned that. How do you suggest the GPs tackle the question as to whether the overactive bladder in a specific patient is interfering with their quality of life? Of course, that is a very important element because once the patient comes to the GP, they passed already a certain uh, threshold. It means that they have symptoms that really bother them. So, as I said before, the most important first step is to recognize, indeed, this is a problem and we will tackle it. The second important element is that the GP uh, should indicate to this patient that, okay, we can do something on that problem. I stress on the word we, because quite often when patients come with the problem as overactive bladder, they put it on the desk of the GP and it's on the GP to solve the problem. Now, in overactive bladder, this is not always the case. There will be an important factor for the patient in terms of amelioration of their psychological problem, but also in terms of changing their drinking behavior, changing their voiding behavior, uh, taking the medication that has been prescribed, eventually go for pelvic floor exercises, so it's a common effort, and I think it's important for the GP upfront to indicate this, that cure or treatment is possible, but first of all, it will be a common effort, and it may take some time, because uh, as we know, it may take some time before there is sufficient relief of the symptoms or disappearance of the symptoms. It's not always a very quick solution, of course, in some patients it will be the case, but in my experience it's good to indicate upfront that it made time and a common effort to tackle overactive bladder. Yes, thank you very much. Sort of broadening the discussion into certain elements of the psychology of the patient, well, you've already mentioned that patients are often very embarrassed, even ashamed to have urgency and even worse if they have urgency incontinence. So they're very reluctant to go to the GP. They fear a negative reaction. Is this is this something we can get over to the GP to, to be more empathetic or at least to come 
upfront about the embarrassment issue around um, the overactive bladder symptoms. That's an excellent point because uh, patients with symptoms of overactive bladder um, still feel a certain taboo to talk on this. Now, um, they they can present with a, a, an adaptive behavior, I would say. And for example, they will not quote that they have a urinary urgency or even frequency or nocturia. Sometimes they even will not quote that they have incontinence and they will present themselves with, for example, bladder pain because for them that feels as a more acceptable symptom than to talk on urinary incontinence. But there again, it would be great if there is more attention to this problem in the lay press and indicate that indeed overactive bladder exists, urinary incontinence exists, and that patients should not be ashamed to talk to their GP on this problem, that uh, the fact that this problem is there does not mean indeed that they are crazy. When we talk on psychological problems, it is not uh, to indicate that there is severe psychiatric pathology, but there is a psychological substrate that facilitates uh, or stimulate these symptoms at the level of the bladder. Uh, in my practice, for example, some of these patients that have been seen say, well, one of the physicians told me that it is between the ears, then uh, indicating psychological problems. Then I say, well, perhaps you didn't like it, but he or she was right because the bladder is controlled by the brain and the problem of overactive bladder without any specific pathology indeed is a brain problem and not a primary bladder problem. Would you agree with that? Yes, no, I agree. What about other people that work in primary care? Because in the UK and I think in Holland, you have, I think you call them urotherapists, we call them continence nurses. Do they have a role in supporting the primary care physician in treating OAB? This is a very important uh, problem. And indeed, we are very fortunate that also in the Netherlands, there are continence advisors or specialized nurses that will work together with the GPs. As we have been addressing that, lacking of time is a very important constraint in terms of the relation uh, between the GP and the patient with symptoms of overactive bladder the nurse or the aide can take over quite a bit of the elements that we have been discussing. In the Dutch situation, in fact, the patient will first be seen even by a continence advisor or a nurse. She will or he will take the history and already distract these elements that will be important for the physician to come up indeed with his diagnosis and as such will make the task of the GP much easier. Thank you very much, uh, Professor Van Karabuk. Your answers have been fantastic. But could we just sum up by asking you another question, which is what part of the management pathway can be dealt with in primary care? And at what point should the primary care physician be sending the patient on to the hospital for further management? Well, I'm quite optimistic in that respect because... The majority of patients with symptoms of overactive bladder, even severe symptoms of overactive bladder, can be treated perfectly well by the physician, the general physician. Because, as we discussed, bladder drill can be implemented in the, by the general physician. 
pelvic floor exercises can be prescribed or advised by the general physician. Medical therapy can be prescribed by the general physician. So in that respect, they have the whole panorama of conservative approach in their hands and can treat the majority of patients. We know from an epidemiological point of view that about 20% of patients will not be cured with this means, which leaves then a group of patients that will have to be addressed to the hospital for additional treatment, which then will be or botulinum toxin injections or neuromodulation. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Professor Van Karabroek. I think what you've said is extremely important. And because so many of our patients will spend most of their time in primary care, it's important that we support both the patient and the primary care physician in this initial part of management of their OAB. So thanks again. Thank you, Professor Abrams. Dear Paul, it was a pleasure discussing this with you. And uh, I hope we could contribute a little bit to ameliorating the care for patients with overactive bladder. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Urgent Matters podcast series. And we hope that this has helped share further insights into overactive bladder. We would like to thank Astellas for their kind support in sponsoring this podcast. Please stay tuned for the next episode where we continue to explore key insights from experts in the field of OAB.